as we begin here tonight to help you understand what I'm saying here. Go over to Ephesians chapter 4, and I hope you brought a notebook and a piece of paper uh, to help take some notes uh, as we go through this study, because we're going to be covering a lot of ground in this study. But Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 14 and 15, this is what the Bible says, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine or teaching, by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Let me say, in no uncertain terms, there are many cunning men, and even women today, standing behind podiums, pulpits, on platforms, all over this country, all over this world, who are not teaching the truth, but they are leading people astray. There are all kinds of teachings in this world today. The only kind of teaching that we should be interested in as the people of God, the only type of doctrine that we should be interested in as the people of God is that which comes right from the word of God itself. Uh, the word doctrine is, uh, comes from a Greek word that literally means teachings. And when we study the doctrines of the scripture, we're studying the teachings of the vast topics that are covered in the word of God. Now this study that we're going to be going through, some students of the Bible might call it a systematic theology. We're going to be going through all the ologies, okay, uh, uh, bibliology, Theology, Christology, pneumatology, ecclesiology, eschatology. I know I'm saying a lot of words that mean nothing to you, um, but they are the different um, topics that cover vast areas of essential doctrine or teaching in the scriptures. And that's what we're going to be doing. And one of the main reasons we're doing is so that you, as a believer, will not be tossed to and fro with every different kind of teaching. You hear something new and oh, makes you question your faith or makes you question where you stand. That ought not to be for us as the people of God. We should be rooted and grounded in God's truth. And uh, that's incredibly important uh, for us to understand. Now, go over to 1 Peter chapter 3 with me if you would. 1 Peter chapter 3. Because for some of you, um, you have had some measure of grounding already in your Christian life. But this is the principle I want you to see from the scripture here. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. If you're there, say amen. The Bible says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be ready to give an answer. The Greek word is apologia. It speaks of apologetics there. The defense of the faith. Be ready to defend your faith. You may say you know what you believe. But if a gun was put to your head and you were asked to be able to say what you believe, that might be a different story. And if you don't know what you believe, you won't stand for it in that type of circumstance. You say, well, pastor, that's never going to happen. Well, number one, don't say something like that. Number two, understand something. Throughout our Christian history, there have been men and women who have literally given their lives, been burned at the stake, been hung, and all different other types of torture simply for 
standing on what God's word has to teach about things like baptism. You say people were killed because of baptism? Yes. And there'll be other things that we have to stand for in our lifetime. But if you don't know what the Bible says, you don't know what you believe, you can't stand for it. And that's why it's so incredibly important that we as believers know what we believe and know that what we believe comes from God's word and not from some preacher. You won't die because I told you what you're supposed to believe. You won't stand because I told you you're supposed to stand. But if God said it and you have God's word undergirding you and you have God's word as your foundation, you can stand. You don't have to be tossed to and fro by every uh, wind of doctrine. And so we're going to have this series on what we believe as Christians. And tonight, as we commence this series, we're going to start with uh, what I would consider to be the most fundamentally important doctrine to your faith. And that is what you believe about the Bible itself. In, uh, uh, in uh, uh, theological terms, we would call this doctrine uh, the doctrine of bibliology. It's the study of the scriptures itself. And, uh, and that's what we're going to be looking at here tonight. And you know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. And listen to me, um, your faith comes from the Bible. That's what that verse said. So what you believe about the Bible itself is integral to the strength of your faith. If you don't have a firm foundation about what you believe about this book right here, all the other doctrine that comes from this book is going to be weak as well. And you understand the uh, liberal um, religious movement in our time, in our day and time, uh, uh, the uh, liberal theology, um, as we might call it um, in terms today, uh, one of the first things that began to shoot up in the liberal camps was a, a, a spirit of questioning the authority of God's word. Well, let's go back and find out what the best scholars have to say about the Bible. Instead of letting the Bible dissolve their questions, they let their questions dissolve their faith in the Bible. If you lose your faith in God's word, you've lost your faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And if there's a question mark in your mind about the Bible, you've got a problem with your faith. And so that's why it's so important that we come to an understanding of what the Bible has to teach us about itself. Understand, from the beginning of time, Satan has tried to attack God's word. We don't have time to go back there, but all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the first statement that we hear Satan saying in the scripture was this, Yea, has God said? From the very beginning, Satan has been trying to put a question mark in our hearts concerning God's word. And he's still trying to do it to this day. And it's important for us to have a firm understanding of what the Bible has to teach us about itself. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil uh, runneth about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. You want to know how you can resist the devil's attempts to try to tear down your faith? Resist it through your faith in God's word. How did Jesus resist the devil? Now, if there's anybody that could have done it in his own power, it was Jesus. But even Jesus, when he was tempted, what did he say every time Satan came and tried to tempt him? It is written. It is written. 
It is written, Satan, you get away from me. This is what the Bible says. And the Bible was his authority, and it's our authority here today as well. And uh, so make no mistake about that there. Now, for our text tonight, as we study this, we're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I've got 30 minutes to bring you through a whole lot of doctrine here tonight. All right, so somebody start a clock. All right, we're going to get through this. Now, I'm going to give you a lot of information. Here's the good news. If you miss some of it, you can go back and listen to it again. All right, we've got it on a podcast. We've got it on our YouTube. We've got it on our Facebook page. And I'm not going to go slow with this necessarily. I will try to not to talk too fast. Um, but we've got a lot of ground to cover, and uh, we're going to do it uh, in the uh, best amount of time that we can do it. But let's read together out loud 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let's read it together. Here we go. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This passage of Scripture gives a simple overview, I believe, of everything you need to know regarding what the Bible teaches about itself. And before we jump into this passage of Scripture and begin to learn some important things about the, what the Bible teaches about itself, let's pray and ask God to open our hearts and our understanding to his word. Father, we come before you and thank you for this opportunity to jump into the scriptures. And I pray, God, you'd give me clarity of thought and mind and an openness of heart and a readiness to learn to those who are gathered here tonight. And I pray, God, that you would help us grow in your grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, God, you would help us to become more rooted and grounded in our faith in your word. And I pray, God, that you would begin to help those who are made perhaps a little bit more mature in their faith, Lord, to have a desire to have an apologia, to be able to defend their faith, Lord, and why they believe these things about your word. And I pray, God, that you would ignite that fire in our heart, Lord, to, to have a passion and a love for your word. And these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. First two words in our text tonight are these, all scripture. The first area we're going to look at as we study Bibliology tonight, the study of the scriptures is this. I'm going to use a lot of big words, um, uh, but we're going to look at the canon of the scripture. Um, this process that we're going to look at is called canonization, uh, consequently. But the Bible simply tells us all scripture. How do we get all the books that we have in the Bible today? Have you ever thought about that? There were many works that were written during the time period in which the Bible was being composed. But there were only 66 books that have been accepted by the church. And the process whereby these books, these 66 books that you find in your Bible were accepted, is known as the process of canonization. Canonization is the process by which each of the 66 books of the Bible was recognized as Scripture. They became the canon of Scripture. You can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, if you'd like, or mark it down so you can look it up later. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 16, this is what the Bible says. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Now that word, rule, 
in the English comes from a Greek word uh, that is kanon. And it literally, uh, that's where we get our word canon too, by the way. And um, that, that Greek word literally speaks of a standard or a measuring rod. And uh, um, uh, there was a canon we find here, a standard that was used in determining uh, exactly what should be God's word. And the process whereby um, God led men to select these 66 books of the Bible to be God's accepted and completed word is known as canonization. And so I want us to look first at how the canonization of the Old Testament took place. Now take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And we're going to look at some of the words of Jesus here in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24 and verse number 44 The Bible says, and Jesus said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now here's what's amazing. Jesus, in that simple verse of scripture, identified for us today what was the received canon of the Old Testament, the standard by which the scriptures from the Old Testament were accepted and determined. And the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, were divided into three categories. Um, this is also confirmed historically um, uh, by, by, by Hebrew records as well. And those three categories are what Jesus indicated here. There was the law, or what the Hebrews call the Pentateuch, and then there was the prophets, and that the, the writings of the prophets include, included all the historical writings um, and the minor prophets um, and, and some of the major prophets as well. And then there was the Psalms, and that included the, po- the poetical books, Job, um, Psalms, um, uh, 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 Song of Solomon, and, and so on and so forth. And that, that also included with that was the book of Daniel. I don't know why exactly, but they would include the book of Daniel in that category. And so there was the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and that's what was used in helping them, helping them determine what would, cons- what would uh, 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 be the canon of the Old Testament. Uh, now, each one of these books had to be approved as being written, edited, or endorsed by a prophet of God. And if you study the history of it, which we don't have time to go into tonight, um, there was an elaborate process by which this canon was accepted, but it was those three steps. Standards, those three uh, canons, if you could, that help them be able to evaluate what books were supposed to be in the Old Testament. There was also a canon for the New Testament, a standard by which the books of the New Testament that we have today were to determined to be so. And uh, uh, when the uh, uh, individuals that God used to determine the canon of the New Testament began to sit down to do it, there were four standards, four canons by which they determined what books should be placed in the New Testament. Let me give you what those were very quickly here. The first standard that they looked for was uh, apostolicity. Now that's a huge word, isn't it? In other words, they looked for it uh, to have, the writing had to have been written by an apostle or someone who was closely related to an apostle. That was one of the first standards in (coughs) Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Um, the Bible tells us there that uh, the, the, the things that we believe are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And um, that's important for us to understand. And so that's one of the reasons that they said the books of the New Testament need to be written by an apostle 
or someone who is closely related to an apostle. The second standard was Catholicity. Now, let me explain what that is. That means that the churches must have already been using the books that were accepted, and the writing had to be universally accepted by all the churches. You go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. You'll find that Paul commended the church because when they received his writings, they received them not as they were the words of a man, but as they actually were the words of God. And the books that were placed into the New Testament were books that were written by men, inspired by God, and that the church recognized as being the word of God. Catholicity. And so there had to be the approval of an apostle. There had to be a universal acceptance of the books by the church. That's Catholicity. The third standard by which they determined what books should be used was orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. And what, the, what, what was meant by that standard was that there must be a consistency within the books that were accepted by all of the other books that were accepted. In other words, if one book didn't teach what all the other books agreed to, then it was thrown out. There must be an uh, orthodoxy amongst all the books. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 Verses 15 and 16. You can jot that down look it up later. In that passage of Scripture, Peter actually talks about Paul's writings. And he commends Paul's writings as being writings of Scripture. And there was an agreement between the books that were accepted into the, into the canon of Scripture as that they were all um, true to the teachings of Jesus Christ and they were uh, universally accepted by the church so we had apostolicity, catholicity, orthodoxy, and the fourth standard by which these books were received was authority. They had to have authority. In other words, the writer had to claim authority. The writings had to have the Lord's authority upon them in order for them to be accepted. And uh, uh, you can write down 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 23. And the Bible says here, <clears throat> are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, and labors more abundant, and stripes and measures and prisons, uh, and prisons more frequently, and deaths often. I'm reading the wrong verse there. Um, write, uh, write down this instead. First Corinthians chapter ten, and I gotta get my eyes checked, guys. I'm in Second Corinthians. That's my problem. First Corinthians chapter eleven and verse twenty three. The Bible says, for I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. The apostle Paul said, I received this of the Lord, and I'm delivering it to you. It had the authority of God upon it, and that's why these, but this particular book, 1 Corinthians, was accepted as part of the canon. And so these were the canon, these were the measuring rods by which the books that we have in the Bible were accepted as scripture. Understand something, when the King James Bible in 1611 was, was distributed, there was, there was a book put in that Bible that was not accepted as a part of the canon. And if you read the original preface, um, the translators indicated that this was put in there for historical sake, kind of like we would put a concordance in the back of a modern day Bible, but it was not to be a part of the canon. Anybody know what that was? The Apocrypha. 
the Apocrypha was put in the original distribution of the English translation of the Bible. There are other books that people say, well, should they be included as part of the Scripture today? Uh, There are debates that people have about books of the Bible that are in there, whether or not they should be in there. For example, Esther. You know whose name is not mentioned once in the book of Esther? God. And yet it was included in the canon of Scripture. Well, it was, it, we understand it, it is an inspired writing from God, and um, uh, there are reasons for why God chose that to be the case. Some people have questions about James and other things, but the fact is, hey, the same God that promised to give us his word did give us his word, and we have all of it right here for us in the scripture. And there are a lot of people who want to raise questions about, uh, about the word of God, or they want to try to take away from it, or they want to try to add to God's word. But the fact is, when you look at history, when you look at the, uh, uh, the process by which these books of the Bibles were determined to be so, you can, be, you can come to a, a confident place in your heart to know that we have the completed word of God that is sitting in front of us right here. By the way, Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19 gives strong warnings to anyone who would try to add or take away from God's word. And As we look further into this study, hey, if you believe that God has preserved his word, then you've got to believe that God has given us his preserved word. And these, a lot of these things we're going to be looking at are connected to each other. And so we see uh, the canon of Scripture, the canonicity of Scripture. The second truth I want us to look at here is the revelation of Scripture. So let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And here it says, all Scripture is what? Given. All Scripture is given. I want us to think about that for just a minute. How did God give us his word? Revelation. Revelation is the process whereby God revealed the words of scripture to man. This was not truth that man already knew. It was truth that man didn't know and couldn't know unless God revealed it to them. This is the revelation of Scripture. Now, in this world, there are many ways that God reveals himself to man. There is something that's called general revelation. And God generally reveals himself and makes himself known to all humanity. Um, examples of general, general revelation would be creation. Psalm 19 and verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. You can't walk out into the beauty of creation without acknowledging the fact that there had to have been a creator who made all these things that are, that are in this world today. God, God, God's creation is a neon sign shouting out that he does exist to this world. General revelation happens through history. Our founding fathers noticed the hand of providence and so much of what happened during the the days of our early history and throughout our history. It was obvious that God's hand was on this country. God reveals himself through history. God reveals himself through our conscience. Every person in this world understands that there's a right and there's a wrong. And the fact that you understand that there is a right and a wrong points to the fact that somewhere in the past there had to have been someone who said this is right and this is wrong. That's general revelation. There's also special revelation. And special revelation is different than general revelation. Special revelation is God revealing his word to man. And when we talk about God giving us the scriptures, that happened by revelation. Now, sometimes God revealed his word by the prophets. Sometimes God revealed his word in an audible voice like he did from Mount Sinai. 
Sometimes God revealed his word even through a donkey. <laughs> you study your Bible. God spoke through a donkey. And there are all kinds of ways that God has revealed his word, but we understand that today God has revealed his word to us through the written scriptures. Of course, Jesus Christ came to be a, a, a living demonstration of God's word, but God has now given us his word in writing for us today. Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two, it says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. That's revelation. God revealing his truth to man. And so we see canonization, we see revelation, but the third principle from the Bible, I want you to see here is the principle of inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. It's given by inspiration of God. The inspiration of Scripture refers to the process by which God recorded his truth for us. That's what inspiration is talking about. It's the process by which God recorded his truth down for us to be able to hold in our hands today. Now, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that word inspiration, it comes from the, a Greek word which literally means God breathed. I want you to think about that for a minute. These words are inspired. What that doesn't mean is that the writers of Scripture were greatly inspired and so they pinned down these beautiful words. No, that's not at all what biblical inspiration is. Biblical inspiration means that God breathed out his words so that the very words that we have written down in this Bible today are the words of God. They are not the words of men. And as we study this uh, process, this, this truth of inspiration, what we find is that God worked through over 40 different men over the course of several hundred years on three different continents using three different languages and delivered to us the complete volume that we have the word of God. Here's the amazing thing about that. All these different men, all these different locations, all these different time periods, and yet there are no errors, there are no disagreements. We get the 40 men that are in this room right now together. We try to write one little page. We disagree on a whole lot of things. We'd have contradictions on a whole lot of things. The fact that the Bible has been written with uh, so many different people over so many different, uh, in so many different cultures and over so many different time periods points to the fact that if there are no agreements, that must mean that there is one author. And there is one author. It's God. Because God inspired all of those men to pen the scriptures that we hold in our hands here today. Now the Bible has much to say about uh, the divine authorship of God's word. And I want us to think here about a couple of things when we think about inspiration. First, I want us to consider the method God used to inspire his word. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter number, or I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter number 1. 2 Peter chapter number 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. The Bible says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. How did God inspire his word? Well, the first thing the Bible indicates to us here is that God moved upon men. He moved, that word 
Um, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That word moved literally means they were born along. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the indication of the Greek word there. And so what the Bible makes very clear to us here is that the words of the Bible did not come by the will of man. Now you go take the Book of Mormon. You go take the Quran. You go take some of these man-made books and you'll find out very quickly the things penned in them were penned coming from the will of a man. And that's not true with the word of God. The words came only as God moved upon the lives of men to put those words into a scripture. Now here's the amazing part about this. God used the personality and the circumstances of the lives of these men to express his own perfect word. As you read different parts of the Bible, you see God, God expressing himself in different ways. And God in his infinite wisdom knew what man to use to write the different, parts of, the different parts of his word. But they are all his words. The same God who created those men is the same God who used those men to communicate to us his perfect word. And so God moved upon men, but I also see in this verse that the Bible tells us that God inspired the words. You make no mistake about it. Every word in the Bible is inspired by God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The words of the Bible are not the private opinions of the men used to write them, but they are the very words of God. And friend, if that isn't true, if there's anything in this book that isn't God's word, if we don't know what is God's word and, and we don't know what is God's word, then we ought to just quit this whole thing. Because if I don't know that this is God's word, I don't want to be following another Cult. There are plenty of cults that are in this world today. If this isn't God's word, then this whole thing is in vain. But if this is God's word, and it is, then our faith is not in vain. God says this is his word. Every single part of this is his word. Let me tell you something. The word of God is just as alive as you are. The same word that's used when the Bible says that God breathed into us the breath of life, the same word transliterated that is used to express to us that God's word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. This book is a living book. And though many of the things that were written in this book were written uh, uh, for, uh, for, for, for many, many, many generations ago, the principles we study in this book are still just as fresh and alive and applicable to our lives today. And friend, as we've studied the things in the book of Genesis, hasn't it been amazing how some things written so long ago that seem so distant to us can come alive if we just dig into the truth of God's word? It's a living book. It's inspired, inspired by God. And so the men used to write the Bible, they didn't always understand what they were writing, but they did understand that what they were writing was God's word as God inspired them. Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 16 makes that very clear. So that's the method by which God inspired his word. But there's another area of inspiration I think we need to consider before we move on. And that is the measure that God inspired his word. The measure of the inspiration of God's word. How far and how much did God inspire his word? I'm going to give you several terms I want you to write down and think about, maybe even study out for yourself. We talk about the measure of inspiration. The first word is this, 
verbal, verbal inspiration. That means that every word is inspired. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In Matthew 5, 18, Jesus said, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. The jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the tittle is the smallest part of the letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And God went so far as to say, not just every word, every punctuation mark. Every little aspect of my word is inspired. Every little bit of it. So we believe in verbal inspiration because that's what Jesus taught us. Verbal inspiration. Every word is inspired. Then we believe in plenary inspiration. Write that word down, plenary. That means that every word is equally inspired. Now all of us have our favorite passages of scripture. Okay? And yet some people, they like to park over in one passage of scripture and ignore the rest of what the Bible has to say. But understand this, every word is equally inspired. It's all God's word. It's all relevant to our lives today. Isaiah 34 and verse 16, seek you out the book of the Lord and read in it. No one of these shall fail. Not one aspect, not anything that you find in God's word, none of it shall fail. It's all inspired by God. A third word I want you to write down when we look at the measure of inspiration is this word, inerrant. We believe the Bible is inerrant. What that means is that every word is recorded accurately. There are no errors in God's word. Now we don't have time to go there tonight, but you can mark this down. Luke chapter 2, verses 48 and 49. Here, um, Mary comes to Jesus in this passage, and Mary, it's when Jesus had stayed behind in Jerusalem, and they lost him, and they run back to Jerusalem, and they're looking for him for three days, and then they finally found him in the temple teaching. And Mary comes and says, Jesus, why did you do this? Don't you know that your father and I have sought you sorrowing? And she refers to Joseph as Jesus' father. Was Joseph Jesus' father? No, stepfather, but not by blood. Now, the Bible records that accurately, what she said, okay? Then Jesus comes back to her in verse number 49 of Luke 2 and says, why did you sorrow? Didn't, don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? And Jesus, in that little instance there, respectfully corrected his mother. He's not my father, but I am being about my father's business, I love that passage of Scripture because it shows us the uh, uh, inerrancy of Scripture, but it also shows us another thing I want you to see here, and that is the infallibility of Scripture. Everything that's in the Bible is recorded accurately for how it happened. It's inerrant, but it's also infallible. And what that, what that word means, infallible, it means that the words communicate, and the words of the Bible communicate absolute truth. There's nothing in the Bible that isn't true. Now, sometimes someone tells a lie in the scripture and the Bible records that accurately, but the Bible always makes sure we know what the truth is, like in that instance in Luke chapter number two. John 17 and verse 17, Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is what? Truth. God's word is true. The word of God is inspired. It's the God-breathed word of God. Everything that's in this book is God's word for our life today. 
Oh, that's so important for us to understand. So important for us to understand. And so we see canonization, we see revelation, we see inspiration, but another truth I want us to see here tonight is preservation. The preservation of Scripture. Now go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Y'all with me still? Say amen. If you're not with me, say oh me. I've never done that before, but we're diving in deep here tonight, and I don't want to lose you in deep water here. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and what? Is profitable. Is profitable. Let me ask you a question. If we didn't have the word that God communicated to us thousands of years ago, how could it be profitable for us today? The only way we can have a, any profitability from this book is if God has preserved it for us today. One of the things we find the Bible teaches and history teaches us is that God has indeed preserved his word for us. Go with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm chapter 12. Psalm chapter number 12. We look at the preservation of Scripture the, pres- the preservation of Scripture is the process by which God extends or preserves his word for and to every generation. God has extended or preserved his word for you and I today. The Bible makes this very clear. Psalm chapter number 12. If you're there, say amen. Psalm 12 and verse 6. This is what the Bible says. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. There the Bible tells us that God is going to preserve his word to this generation and beyond and forever. Now go over to Psalm chapter 119. Just a couple of books over. Psalm 119 and verse number Uh, 152, Psalm 119 and verse 152. This is what the Bible says. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. Psalm 119 and verse number 89. This is what the Bible says. In verse 89, forever, O Lord, thy words are settled in heaven. Friend, there are Literally dozens and dozens and dozens of instances in the scripture that I could go to where the Bible tells us about himself that God is going to preserve his word. It's a promise that God gave us in the scriptures. And oh, it's so important for us to understand. And as we consider the preservation of scripture, there are many great instances of how God has preserved his word. For example, you can write this down and look at it yourself later. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 36, and Jeremiah 36, Jeremiah wrote a portion of scripture that God had given to him, and God told him to deliver it to the king, and he delivered it to the king of Israel, and when he gave it to the king of Israel, the king of Israel took it and cut it up with a penknife and threw it into the fire, the Bible says. And you think, well, God said he's going to preserve his word, and look at it, look at it there, the only copy of it burning in the fire. You know what God told Jeremiah to do? Take another roll and write it down again. God gave it to him again because God has promised to preserve his word. And throughout history, there have been many ways that God has preserved his word for us. Listen to me. In the Old Testament, 
There was a three-tier system that God originated to make sure that his word was preserved for future generations. There were three individuals that God told they were to write themselves their own copy of the scriptures. First, there were the priests, the religious people. And there's there's so much scripture I can give you about these things. But the priests, God told them to be the scribes, was what they were called. The ones who would write copy after copy of the uh, Old Testament scriptures and pass them down for future generations. God also, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, told the households, the fathers, that they were to write copies of God's word to pass down to their families as well. And then God actually made it an ordinance that the kings of Israel, every one of them, had to write his own copy of the scriptures so that he could have it and read it as often as he needed to to get the counsel of God's word. So from the government to the home to the religious institution of that day, the priests, all of them, there was a three-tier system that God used to pass down manuscripts, copies of his word from generation to generation. These copies, especially among the scribes, were copiously kept. If something was misspelled, listen to me, young people, if something was misspelled, they had to burn the copy that they had and start over again. How would you like for that to be your standard from your teacher at school? No comments on that. There was, it was, these were copies of scripture that were copiously kept. Whenever the name Jehovah was written, capital L-O-R-D in our King James Bible, whenever that word Jehovah was written, it is said that, 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 that the expectation was for the scribes, when they wrote the word Jehovah, they had to go and wash themselves entirely, and then they could come back and continue their writing anytime they wrote the word Jehovah. It was high standards, if you study the history of it, that were taken in the uh, preservation of the scripture for future generations. That's how the scriptures were preserved in the Old Testament. But the Bible also was preserved for us in the New Testament as well. And uh, let, me give you, let me give you some things here that I, think, um, that I think will be helpful for you in understanding this year. And I don't want <clears throat> to miss uh, the process of what I'm trying to tell you here. Matthew 28 and verse number 20. Jesus told us as the church to teach the people that we went to the Lord all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all the way into the end of the world. Amen. Do you know the institution, or I should say the organism, that God has entrusted the preservation of his word to in this New Testament period? It's the church. It's the church. In fact, if you look in your Bible, <clears throat> the Bible literally indicates to us that the church is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. The pillar and the ground of the truth. And you look throughout history, there are literally thousands and thousands of manuscripts from ages gone by of local churches spread all throughout that, uh, uh, that uh, Mediterranean area. Churches that They would get a copy of God's word from another church and they'd make a copy of that uh, passage of scripture for themselves and pass that copy on to another church and they'd make a copy of it for themselves and pass it on to another church. And This is how the Bible was distributed in the New Testament time period. And today there are thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of these manuscripts that were passed around between these churches throughout the early days of the church. 
In the process of time, all of those manuscripts were gathered together and were put together into what we have as our canon of the scripture here today. But let the fact remain, hey, I don't have time to get into all the history, but from a historical perspective and from a biblical perspective, understand that God has promised to preserve his word and God has preserved his word for us today. And so you can be confident that that book that you hold hold in your hands tonight, it is the very word of God passed down to you. Now, connected to our belief in the fact of preservation is our belief in translation. See, the Bible says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, that could not be possible unless God has given us his word in our own language. You want to know why the Dark Ages were called the Dark Ages? Because during the Dark Ages, the Catholic Church kept God's people from being able to read God's Word. How did they do that? They kept the Bible in Latin. Nobody could read Latin. Then you had men like William Tyndale who rose up on the scene and began to sneak copies of God's word. And by the way, uh, even, even before Tyndale, you had, you had people like Martin Luther and many other people who, did, who didn't give full renderings of the scriptures, but they did give renderings of important passages of scriptures like Romans. And they began to translate the Bible into, into the language of the people so that the people could understand what the word of God said. And listen to me, if we believe that God has promised to preserve his word, then we have to believe that God has promised to preserve his word in a way that you and I could understand it here today. God has not preserved his word um, only in, I hear people say this all the time, God's only preserved his word in the original languages or in the original manuscripts. Here's a problem with that. If God has only preserved his word in the original manuscripts, we don't have any of them. So we don't have God's word. That can't be the truth. If you believe in preservation, then you cannot believe that to be so. God has preserved his word. And God has passed that word down from generation to generation and has also, in in that process of preservation, that same promise of preservation carries into the translation of scriptures. And I understand in this room there are people that don't hold hold to uh, uh, my, my, uh, uh, my preference of using the King James Bible. Um, uh, that, that, that the English language, was one, which was one of the early translations of the English Bible. But let's agree on this fact right here, okay? God has preserved his word and given it to us in the English, English language here today. I'm not going to get into a discussion about the King James Bible here tonight, but although I do believe, and listen, I'm not a Ruckmanite. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not saying here tonight that um, <clears throat> the, 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 the King James Bible um, is, the, is the one and only preserved word of God. You hear me quote and give references and definitions from the Greek and Hebrew language all the time, okay? And so understand that right there. But I do believe that God has given us his word today. And I don't believe that I have to go become a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar to be able to get what God's word is. I believe God's given us his word in our language so that we can know what God has to say as English-speaking people here tonight. By the way, just as much as I believe that, I believe that God wants to preserve his word into all the different languages of the people that are on this earth. And I believe he's given a process whereby that can be accomplished as well. 
And the doctrine of preservation necessitates us to believe that the word that has been preserved can be translated into the tongue of all the nations of this world. Listen, that's why we support ministries uh, uh, like Bearing Precious Seed who are still in the process of bringing on missionaries, going to foreign countries, learning their languages so that they can give them copies of the Bible in their language so that those people can reach their own people in their own language. And boy, there's, there's a lot more we could say about that, but let me, let me show you this verse, Psalm chapter 68. Psalm chapter 68 and verse 11. Go over there with me, Psalm 68 and verse number 11. <clears throat> this is what the Bible says. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. I love that verse, don't you? The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. God got his word to the world. And in some respects, he's still doing that to this day. And well, there are so many great heroes of the faith. I don't have time because we're already over time here tonight to talk to you about some of these men who spent their lives going to foreign countries, learning the languages of the people, and translating God's word into their languages. Just these men are, are, are true pioneers and heroes of the faith, and women too, uh, who have been a part of this process. And God has used many men and women throughout history to fulfill his promises about his word. And what a beautiful thing it is. Now the final thing I want us to see tonight, um, we've looked at the canonization of Scripture, we've looked at the revelation of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the preservation of Scripture, we've looked at the translation of Scripture, but I want you to notice with me the illumination of Scripture, the illumination of it. Illumination is the process by which God's Spirit enables the believer to understand God's Word. Go over to John chapter 16 in your Bibles with me if you would. John chapter 16. John chapter 16, Jesus made a promise to us here in John 16 and verse number 13. The Bible tells us in John 16 and verse 13, Howbeit, Jesus said, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will what? Guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Write down Second. Uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him, but God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. The word that God has revealed, inspired, and preserved for us today, he has also made it possible for us to understand it by his Spirit. When you got saved, God put his spirit in your heart, and the spirit is the teacher. God's spirit can help open up to you things from the scriptures that no lost person in this world could possibly comprehend. That's illumination. The last thing I want us to see tonight here is the application of the scripture. Let me just summarize this by saying this. We don't believe that God has revealed his word, inspired his word, put it into a canon for us today, preserved it for us, translated it in a language that we can understand, given us his spirit so that we can understand it. We don't believe that God has done all of those things so that we can take the Bible and say, well, I got it. 
No. God has given us his word, and he expects us to do something with it. And I think that you could probably help me come up with a lot of ways that God expects us to use this word, but let me just give you a few before we're done. First, he wants you to study it. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God has not given you his word. So you can just wave it around and be happy that you have the Bible and do nothing with it. He's given you the Bible so that you'll get in it and discover what his truth is. Study it. Another application of God's truth here. God wants you to grow in his word. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God expects you to grow in your faith in the Lord. Some of you have been saved 10, 20, 30 years. Are you growing in your faith? Are you growing in your knowledge of what the word of God has to teach you? Study it. Grow in it. Here's the third thing I'd say. Practice it. James chapter 1 and verse 22. The Bible says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Did you know God wants you to put his truth into shoe leather? He wants you to practice it. Do you know the truth that you hear preached on Sunday, the truth that you read on Monday, that truth that God speaks to your heart about? You're not supposed to say, oh, that's really nice, and close your Bible and go on about your way. James says that's like a man looking in the mirror and realizing he's got some stuff on his face that really should be wiped off, and then he just turns around and goes around like, it doesn't matter. No. If God shows you something in your life that's not supposed to be there, he wants you to do something with it. That's why he's given us his word. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. He wants you to practice it. Here's another thing, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. God wants us to preach the word, to be instant in season, out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And it's not popular today, but I'm going to tell you something. God still wants us to preach his word in this day and time. And not just cherry-picking parts of it. God wants us to preach the word, all of it. Hey, in season and out of season, and there's a lot of things in this book that aren't popular in our, con- uh, in our current culture. <laughs> Let's make no mistake about it. There are some things that um, uh, a lot of preachers, they just want to the, the skip around among the tulips and not talk about because they're uh, sensitive topics in our day and time, but God's word is still just as true today as it's always been, and we need to preach the word. I'll give you this final one, Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. God wants us to share it. God wants us to share his word. Listen, God has not gone through this whole process to give us his word just so that we could learn it and grow in it and keep it all for ourselves. God wants us to share it. God wants us to share it with the other people that are in our lives. The application of the scripture Friend, I didn't even scratch the surface tonight, and I, and I went over it too, so how about that? There's so much about the Word of God that we need to know as the church. Now, here's the challenge, and hear me out. Don't tune me out yet. Here's the challenge. I want you to take some of what we've learned tonight and dig deeper. Dig deeper, because we are living in a society that wants to question this book right here. And listen, what you believe about the Bible is so important because if you don't believe the Bible, 
you don't believe in the Lord. You don't believe in the whole Christian faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Whenever I'm talking to someone about the Lord, I always start with finding out, do they believe this book right here? Because if you can't believe this book right here, you can't be saved. Because it's the truth of this book that can save you. If you won't believe the truth of this book, you can't be saved. And that's not because it isn't true. It's because you won't believe it. We believe this truth. This truth determines everything else that we believe about life. Everything else that we believe about the Lord, about the future, everything. We need to be grounded in what we believe about the Bible. Now in our small groups this next week, we're going to dive in. And I don't know all where the conversations are going to go because in the time that we have to meet in small groups, we won't even be able to scratch the surface of things to be discovered when we talk about the study of God's word either. But all of you that are going to be joining in in this study, I want to encourage you to make sure and grab the handout. Um, Dr. Elmer Towns, um, vice president of Liberty University from years ago, uh, when it was, uh, uh, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but uh, he, he wrote a, a book about uh, the doctrines of the Bible and uh, such, a, such a great resource. I want you to read it. It talks about a lot of the things that we just, we just taught from the scripture here tonight. And I want you to just dive deep this summer and studying and grounding yourself further in what you believe about these core doctrines of our faith. But in the middle of all of this, hey, listen, this is the last thing I promise. In the middle of all this, let's not lose sight of the application. God has given us all of these wonderful things about his word and he's giving it to us, given us to us today so that we have God's very word in our hands here today, but he's given it to us for a purpose. What are you doing with God's word? People have died for this book so that you could hold it in your hand. Jesus shed his blood so that we could hold the truth that is in this book in our hands. What are you doing with the word of God today? That's what I want you to think about as an application here tonight. And boy, I don't know how God has spoken to your heart, but when you think about all that went into giving us this book, I don't know about you, that makes me want to treasure it. And that makes me want to do something with it. When someone gets up to start talking about the Bible, that makes me want to listen to it. This is what God has to say. And that's, that's what our spirit ought to be when it comes to the Bible here tonight. Let's all bow our heads.